1: Welcome to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and this week we are heading back to the Green Dragon Cannabis Dispensary in Denver, Colorado, uh, where I talked with Ryan Milligan. He's one of the company's co-owners and also its head of cultivation, which is to say he's basically a pot farmer. Um, I set out to talk with Ryan about the day-to-day of actually growing wheat. This is the sort of thing you typically discuss with a farmer. But as often happens with people who work in this industry, the discussion quickly turned to regulations. All of the many, many, many rules that they have to follow to stay on the right side of the law. And frankly, I, I thought it was really interesting that this is the preoccupation of someone whose job is nominally to actually grow the plant. It turned out to be a really fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy
2: Thank so you for that tour that was, yeah, you're welcome. This is your first grow, basically, and it's funny. People say grow houses, like you know, I, I don't, th- I don't think you like if you were at a tomato place, what would you have called it? If you were at a big tomato, okay, tomato a place, house. probably
1: okay. not a grow house, right? Uh, no, not called
3: it a grow house. You're right. That's it, absolutely not. No, you're correct.
1: <laughs> I, I probably would not have, but that's that's what we've all been. acculturated and to and call there's,
2: it. There's a ton of that. There really is. Yeah, I just run across that all the time. What
1: other like funny stuff do people like? Yeah,
2: I don't know. I, I, that one, that one I've come across like several times in the last few so days, when so it you, stands
1: out. Though. When you hear Grow House, what does that bring to your mind?
2: I mean, it brings to my mind what I know is in your mind, yeah. which is you know what what was on the news a decade ago, which was a house in suburbia, you know, rented by some fellas. And filled every room of it with weed. I mean, that's like that's what you think of, and that's why it's a grow house. When everything else, every other grow place you've been, would not be a grow house. Absolutely know? not. No, so no. it's like it, it's, it's. And you kind just of walked funny. me through this
1: place. It's it's hyper professional. <laughs> it's I, you know it's like a gorgeous facility. Like Thank I just walk around you know, admiring the aesthetics. Of, we've like, certainly tried. I
2: mean, it, we've I've been doing it for about a decade, and they certainly all didn't look like this. Uh, you know, we started in warehouses, kind of like everyone else, but. Uh, it's evolved, and I, I we didn't really... The technology existed, but we didn't really have to reinvent the wheel, but we certainly had to cater it towards marijuana. So there was a lot of working with... Um you know, man, different manufacturers to kind of get that dialed in.
1: Okay, so the the traditional way these interviews start is my first question is always supposed to be, what's your name and what do you do? I think we have sort of hopped into the interview yeah, already, we but did, we just, just for the sake of working tradition, what is your name and what do you do?
2: My name is Ryan Milligan, I'm with Green Dragon Colorado, and I'm uh, an owner of the company.
1: You're an owner and you're the head cultivator, correct? That's
2: right, I spend almost all of my time in production facilities, yep.
1: So is if i were to say you are a cannabis farmer is that kind of correct or is that a i think
2: that's pretty much correct i mean as an entrepreneurial kind of guy I, you know you always kind of look for that ground floor of something you know new and i mean in 2009 i was in real estate uh, back east and we all know what happened then so there were some tragedies taking place in that business. So, you know, I was just kind of looking for something uh, new and fresh. I mean, you call it what you want. To me, it's very much a, a business a job. And, uh, you know, I, I've had a lot of fun kind of working through the inefficiencies that used to exist in all of these places and kind of dialing those back and bringing cost of goods down.
1: Wait, so you were like a real estate broker or... yeah. I'm-
2: I had my license to buy and sell, but I also build a lot of stuff, did a lot of commercial projects. um, Oh, cool, cool. Medical space and things of that nature.
1: Like in... in like um interior building kind of things or? no
2: it's new new construction oh, okay
1: yeah top to bottom so that probably helped with building
2: it this did place. really i had a lot of experience in that and meshed right in with uh as i said that was back east so once i got here you know we lined up contractors and kind of started the whole thing started making contacts but it was the same approach as you would do in any business it just happened to be marijuana
1: how did you learn to grow marijuana?
2: We made some mistakes, that's for sure. Um, <laughs>
1: but, like, there's no textbook, is there,
2: there? None of this came with an instruction manual, that's for sure. You there's, don't
1: apprentice... Oh, I guess you probably can apprentice now. You probably but,
2: can now. In fact, yeah, you know, I think Oaksterdam got shut down, but that was essentially like a little weed college. Uh, yeah. But personally... You know, I just kind of figured it out as we went. You know, I mean, the, the, what you're allowed to do as a production facility also has changed greatly over the years. So the things that you were allowed to do in, or not allowed to do rather in 2009 versus now have changed dramatically. You know, it used to be just medical, which your plant count was based solely on patient count. And now you can tear up through different layers of, you know, licensing to allow more production. So our whole scheme kind of grew with the regulations that would allow us to kind of do more and more in some areas. That's not to say all, because we're very
1: limited in some areas. So you were you joined in two thousand nine. You helped open, I guess, the first. Stores. That's right. We, when it was Green Dragon, or when it was, it was Green. It was Greenworks at Greenworks, that time. yep. Now there were four of us. There were four of you guys, yep. and you opened them together. And yep. so, did any of you have agriculture skills at that point? No, or no, so you did were, you bring on people to? come Kind of
2: look. no 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 that was uh what, as far as we were concerned, well within our range of figuring out I mean the the actual growing process of marijuana of growing marijuana seemed to kind of pale in comparison to even though that's obviously the the heart and soul of our business, it really compared paled in comparison to the regulations and red tape and tribulations and trials that you seem to had to go through f- from a regulatory standpoint, so we just kind of waded through. The production portion of things. Was
1: that like, you go on Google and say like, is it? <laughs> I mean, I,
2: I I had some farming background. I mean, I, I was never a farmer previous to this, but I mean, uh, common sense goes a long way. I mean, that's the real answer. Common sense goes a long way. I mean, you're just trying to grow plants. You, yeah. You know, that's,
1: it's fairly simple. But so you had some farming background when you joined in 2009. Yeah, I
2: mean, I grew up in Ohio in the middle of corn country. Okay. So, you know, i no stranger to a combine, but that's very different than what we have, than what we do here. So, yeah. but you know, on a, a plant health scientific level, it's pretty straightforward. You know,
1: and so over time, you've learned more and more just on That's the right. job. Don't yeah, you?
2: and really, the 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 big advances in that department, in my opinion, are the technologies that can control your climate autonomously, and your watering, and your temperatures, and lighting, and shades, fans, etc. I've learned a lot with the controls.
1: So when you were first opening the, the, you know, green works in those first few stores, yep. what kind of a place were you growing in? Where, where was was, a, what was that environment? Yeah, It was like?
2: a 6,000 square foot, uh, indoor warehouse, you know, all of the real estate. First of all, in 2009, you were lucky to find someone that would rent to you as a marijuana person, because I, you know, was absolutely telling any landlord or potential, you know, uh, Person that it was a marijuana production facility. This was not something that I came out here to keep under the table. You know, this is where you you should be able to come and have a marijuana production facility that's completely licensed and regulated, and everybody's paying taxes and and so that's what we did. So, uh, you know, you couldn't hardly you could it was hard to find a landlord that would rent to you. How did you do that? A lot of looking. You know, uh, I mean, talk about Craigslist. There, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't exactly walk into Remax uh, commercial division and ask for a marijuana warehouse. I mean, that's just not what it was. In fact, in 2009, we rented our first place, uh, and had our first harvest before, I believe it was house bill 1284, which was the first, the first, you know, regulatory laws that were passed down. So there, there was no, not only was there no instruction manual to, for the production of marijuana, but there certainly wasn't one for the regulatory standpoint either. So you know, the cities and the state were working through those issues. We were working through those issues. Uh, and that's kind of when vertical integration got passed down. So you, you couldn't have... You had to be vertically integrated. You couldn't have a standalone grow in 2010 or a standalone store.
1: And that's why the dispensaries all around Colorado, they all... They're seed to sale, pretty much, for the most they
2: part. They are, for the most part. I'm not sure exactly what the license split is now. But you but now you can have a store, a standalone store, and a
1: standalone grow.
2: They, they've allowed that. So... But, but I
1: just because pr- of tradition, that's why a lot of them I work think the way so. They do.
2: I, it's kind of winds up not making sense. I mean, it would be like saying to the guy who sells tires, You got to make 70% of your own tires, you can only buy 30%. You know, it makes no sense, which is a lot. have come to it's very normal to function in that environment now. None of it makes a whole lot of sense from a regulatory <laughs> standpoint, but you know, we just we don't make the rules, but we certainly play by them.
1: So you got started in like this 6,000 square foot. Warehouse space, which sort of sounds to me like what we were just talking about. Like, you know, it's the size of a big house. Like, it's, I mean, this is what, 150,000 square feet now? You've upgraded a little bit. A little bit. So, what was, you know, what is it like working in that kind of space? (laughs) I mean, it was great, to be honest
2: with you, especially now that I. I think very much upon those days as the good old days. You know what I mean? Like it's never going back to that. So, so I have a, a very big place in my heart for those days.
1: Paint me a picture. I mean, was it like? You know, was it like the sodium lights and stuff that you see like on TV or what did it actually look like? Yeah,
2: it it was. I mean, for those days, for what was out there, uh, the Sacramento Bee ran a story on it and came in and took some pictures very early on, which you can still Google those and and you can see it. And it was very uh, cutting edge, honestly, for, for its day. I mean, I had at that time, there were a lot of people that were only just able to dip their toe in the in the in the marijuana space. So when I came to them and wanted to design a room or you know to put together an HVAC system, it was very it was apparent within seconds of talking to, of that initial conversation as whether or not that person was a fan of marijuana or not a fan of marijuana. And uh the ones that were jumped in with both feet and we designed a great facility. It was uh you know it had two flowering rooms. It had a, in the middle of that was a veg a veg room and we would harvest one of those flowering rooms each month uh you know it was just uh it was very very simple compared to the situation that we're in today and i I love the situation we're in today but i just i like to take the 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 good old days if you will for exactly what they were which is just a really fun time
1: how many people were working in that warehouse
2: it was i have a partner kelly who's been with me from the beginning uh and so it was him him and i and two others.
1: That was it. That was it.
2: That was the whole operation. That was it. It was feeding two stores, one on Colfax in between the Ogden and the Fillmore, which was closed, and another one in Edgewater. By the way, the Fillmore store was closed. The, the Colfax store was closed. The city had—this was very early on in the licensing, so there were some bumps in the road to to be expected, but the city had approved that store based on measuring— You know, we have regulations as to how close we can be to a school. So that was a 1,000 feet. And the city measured that as pedestrian walkways. The feds, for whatever reason, in 2010, mid-2010 or so, thought, well, let's just go check some measurements. I I guess they must have thought this. So they come to Denver, evidently, and, you know, check some measurements, and they measure as the crow flies. Uh Uh-oh. That cut my 1,000 feet. Plus, down to about 800.
1: Oh, boy.
2: <laughs> so, you know, at the time, in between the Ogden and the Fillmore, it was a great store. Like, it was a great store. It's where you want a store. Yeah. It's too, in between two major concert venues. Yeah, that's, that where else well could known. you
1: possibly want to... Couldn't pick a better spot. Yeah.
2: And uh, I got a letter that said, you know, we've measured your store, yada, yada, 800 and some change feet. And I'm like, wow. You know, so I'm, I'm reading this letter... With uh, my hands were slightly trembling when I opened the letter. I'll be honest with you. I mean, it's not every day, you know, you get that letter. It's every day that I hope to not get that letter. But but to this day I got that letter, so I'm kind of, you know, kind of mulling it over. It's sixty plus percent of our, you know, it's probably a little higher than that. It's like, you know, it's probably honestly close to seventy percent of our business was coming out of that store, and um, it says to shut down. So I wrote a reply and respectfully, very respectfully explain explained my position and how the city had measured, how the state had measured the distance, and I got a letter back that said, you know, I, I don't recall, I'm sure I have this letter somewhere, but it, it basically said respectfully you you know, you're gonna close that store, we're gonna you know, probably pay you a visit. And we immediately closed that store. You
1: don't go toe to toe with the feds. Yeah.
2: You don't go toe to toe with the feds. And uh, I'm and the last thing I wanted. Is, am here to do is to break any of the rules. So if they saw it as eight hundred and change, and I saw it as a thousand, obviously they're going to win that. So that's discussion. the kind of uncertainty you guys were dealing. with. That's the kind of uncertainty
1: you, you were that like you never knew if your business was going that's to right. get randomly shut down for a bureaucratic now. That's oak.
2: right, and and so that really took me, but. That took me definitely off guard, but it also bulletproofs you in a business mind way that and I think is very hard to come by. I mean, you're kind of a product of your environment and the regulatory environment starting then all the way up 10 years later till now has really kind of builds a mindset that I think is kind of hard to come by. I think there's a lot that we're... that that us, Myself and Green Dragon as a company is equipped to deal with now as these other states launch uh, recreational or medical markets.
1: I want to go back to kind of the farming part of things. You started off in the warehouse, 6,000 square feet. Now you're in this giant facility, which you walked me around. How many other... Like greenhouses are there like this how how many other people grow in in uh, a place this size?
2: yeah, I think that there's not there's not a lot I mean what you see if you look down south kind of in Pueblo because to put a structure up and to add all the things that have to go to control that you know winds up being obviously very expensive. There's uh, some middle ground that I see people try to get to, which is kind of down south where they'll put up a couple of headhouses, a couple of greenhouses to grow, you know, to to have propagation area, to make clones, which get repotted and grown, you know, a foot or a couple of feet high and then go into a field, you know, whether that's a hemp uh, business plan or you know, a hemp slash CBD business plan, or even if they're just trying to get the flower to market as flower, you know, there's the field guys. You got the field guys, which wind up saving a lot of money, but have a lot of challenges, whether it's weather or irrigating or pressure from insects. Um, There's that. But then to have a large scale that's completely housed and contained under roof in a greenhouse, you don't see people doing hectares and hectares of greenhouses like you would for commercial Peppers and tomatoes.
1: This was something you were telling me while we were walking around that I thought was really interesting is that there used to be a consensus that indoor marijuana was the best stuff. You wanted yeah. that like hydroponic kind of grow That's house. Right. Yep. And a greenhouse is not what we're seeing now. Like Even though this is the kind of facility where you would grow commercial tomatoes or whatever else this is different this is a what so what is the distinction between a greenhouse and like a, a like you now work in and a traditional uh indoor grow house
2: i think that all all of the major factors having to do with the control of the environment right i mean let's not make it rocket science it, it's it's if you can the better you can control the environment you know the better that crop will be so indoors you know, in a traditional warehouse, a closed warehouse, no sun, you struggle to have enough air conditioning. You struggle to have enough electric available. You struggle uh, to, you know, keep your climate in check, which just leads to a, a kind of a lower end crop. We ha- all, all of the control factors in, in a greenhouse are, are highly, highly controlled and they're autonomously controlled and, and you're not relying on people to keep those controls in, in line. It's all programmed and laid out. So I think that, the conception or misconception rather um, had to do a lot with the culture, you know, whether it's your own experience or, you know, um, hip hop songs or just any kind of factor in general had just kind of taught people that that was the way to go. But I also think that comes from not being able to do this. You were never really able to grow in a greenhouse. You know, it's, it's obvious if you start to think about, you know, how, how you would try to approach this and not, have people know that you're growing marijuana uh that all limits itself to basements and closed rooms and dark spaces and far out in the middle of nowhere tell
1: me you weren't going to build a hundred fifty thousand square greenhouse in the middle of a major metropolitan probably not (laughs) that probably wouldn't
2: (laughs) fly you know and and if you did people would certainly notice so i think that whole perception just is is culturally based really um
1: and probably because when people grew outdoors they were kind of not, I mean, like, the outdoor stuff was not great. It was sort of like That's right. random I mean, you, plots. Yeah, of, you
2: got to think also, I mean, I s- see people every day who walk into our stores and haven't seen marijuana in 30 years. And so they start thinking back 30 years ago to what their personal experience with marijuana is. And, you know... I saw a page out of the 1970 high times the other day. It was a, it had a picture of a tie stick on the front page. There were seeds blowing out of every crevice of this bud. You know, I couldn't give that weed away in this in this town. And and that that probably was 6, 7, maybe 8% THC if you really got a good one. Today, if you have anything that's not in the 20s, you know, people just aren't looking for that.
0: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So that actually
1: brings me to a question I'm wondering. As a farmer, what is actually your goal for these plants? Like, is it just to push up the amount of THC? What makes a good cannabis plant? You know, I think that
2: varies if you're asking the, the manufacturer or the consumer, but I think there's a happy medium in between the two. What I need are a pretty specific set of circumstances, which are, is a quick cycle. You know, you can get a 16 week sativa, but you know, weed is $10 an eighth. So that 16 weeks is going to spread that $10 very thin, uh, from a cost of goods standpoint. So I, what I need is a, is an eight or a nine week cycle that is as potent as possible and, and, has a large mass fruit
1: can you ever i guess can the weed ever be too strong
2: the weed can certainly be too strong for what some people look at for instance in our situation if you if and that depends on where this product is being is heading so if it's going to a mip you're going to extract all of the thc out of those plants a mip being the manufacturing of infused products uh, edibles, extracts, live resin, live rat wax, crystals, things like that, and CO two oil to go into uh, CO two oil to go into edibles. So, in that, in an extraction situation, you you need as much THC as you can for that batch to yield as much as possible. Now, you can lower that potency down by dosing it into a sucker or an edible or a candy bar, uh, and lower that down to a to a uh, you know 10 milligrams per serving standard which is, uh, is the rule uh, and then the consumer can have their choice of how many bites of that candy bar they take, essentially lowering the potency. Now as far as flour goes, you can't lower the potency on a piece of flour If you were if you harvested a bud and you were going to sell it as bud and it tested at 29% and the person at the retail counter wanted it to be 15 there's certainly no lowering that. However, it's like saying you have to drink the whole bottle of liquor. I mean, you you don't. You can just take a sip of the liquor. Uh, so you don't have to smoke the entire... I don't know about you.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you don't have to smoke the entire bowl or, or whatever, you know. And so, you you know, the consumer can limit that intake are you still aiming for sort
1: of a certain range though for a lot of the plants that are going to be smoked or?
2: Yeah, 20 and up. 20 and up. Is basically where we're That's at. That's roughly. That's and right.
1: So how are you hitting that range? Is it about selecting the plants? Is it about something you're doing when you're raising them? Yeah. So we do
2: breeding here and we look through a lot of different phenotypes. When you come across a plant that has the characteristics that you want, you, you can you can either enhance or add to those characteristics by taking another plant and breeding those so together now that it's
1: like making it's like an apple that's right it's
2: exactly right i mean it's how you get the good flowers that are very hardy that can sit in a home depot parking lot all summer and still look great Uh, they have those characteristics they're drought tolerant or whatever the case may be and you can definitely search those out and and breed those in or out and tune them kind of up or down when we do a breeding project that'll create a, a a ton of different phenotypes so Think about how easy it is to make like a hundred thousand seeds i mean it's it's you know one male plant in a room full of female plants will do that and and that's kind of the easy part. Then you have all these seeds so you, so those seeds are all very different. it's just similar to you know it's like you're very closely related to your brother, but you're certainly very different from your brother and so the the seeds are the same way, so once you have those seeds, you'll you know phenotype all of those out and continue to look. For those characteristics, and see which ones carried those characteristics on or didn't, and then sort through those sort through that phenotype experiment. And
1: so eventually, you're going to breed the right plant that's going to have the right flavor and the right amount of THC. That's right. The same way you're breeding that apple, breeding yeah, that tomato. That's
2: right. And of those, you know, you could just say of those ten seeds for for conversation's sake, but it could be of those five thousand seeds there will be some that absolutely have the characteristics you want and there will be some that have no characteristics that you want i mean they're going to take forever to flower they're not potent they're very leafy and larfy hard to trim hard to maintain uh, are very finicky on the nutrients so you have to work your way through that and that's kind of how we you know perpetuate the search uh, and the science of of the of the plants that that will do the things that we need
1: do you have like I guess a plant biologist on your team or is it just like, how do you guys actually run that part? It seems like it's a pretty important. We do have a biologist at this point. We do. Work with him very closely. And he helps figure out the genetics (laughs) and everything. And once you find those plants are you then essentially just like taking cuttings and regrowing them? That's right.
2: Before you flowered, so you would plant that seed. It would grow to a larger type veg plant if it was a male seed. You're going to eliminate that right away because we're only dealing with females. And once the males are eliminated, you'll grow that you'll veg that plant up to a few feet or whenever you would like to start cloning it, and then you take a clone from it and send that to flower. The whole time you have that genetic backed up from that seed uh, that you popped. It's still you still have that. That plant doesn't flower, and um, so at the end of the experiment, if you had ten plants. 10 seeds that you planted, which generated 10 clones, also known as 10 phenotypes, and then those 10 phenotypes flowered. At the end of that 16 weeks, you would decide which one you wanted and which ones you didn't, and you would get rid of the ones that you didn't and clone on a much larger scale the ones that you did.
1: How often are you going through that process? Like of, it's
2: of, continuous. You're it's, always it's looking all for the new. time. Yeah, I've always I'm always somewhere within that cycle.
1: How how big a part of your job is just like kind of finding new clones? It's and-
2: big. I mean, you know, people walk into our stores and say, "You know, that shit I got last time was great, but what else you got?" And so it's not it's kind of like you kind of we always are shooting for a mix of the very best of the old, but you very much need to have something cutting edge and something coming. It's like, we, we, we had that, that was great. We have this coming, and after that will be this. So there's always just that constant uh, stream of push, 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 new, new, new. But you, you must kind of retain uh, some of the oldies but goodies as well.
1: How many are you selling at a time typically?
2: We're working right now in the production phase with about 100 genetics that have been, you could say tried and true at this point you know um with probably another i mean there's a there's a lot in the r&d phase i wouldn't have a number but it's a lot
1: and how many of those hundred how many are going to be on sale at any given point
2: through a number of different products close to all but that's including everything from edibles you know to creams to tinctures to salve lip balm and flower so so most
1: how does your day typically start? I mean, what are you what are you doing when you get here?
2: You know, I get here at about six a.m. every day. Uh, that's generally speaking. Be- get on the tractor before and- everybody else. <laughs> yeah, start up the combines. Now, I get here at six, and you know, a lot of my I, I, it's it varies greatly from day to day. I mean, one day uh, I'm I'm sitting with a, a state auditor, auditor auditing, you know, thousands of plants. The next day, we're packaging. I mean. So I'll get here at six. Everybody kind of starts to flow in. There's about 30 people that work at our facility. You know, they pretty much have a game plan for every day. Uh, this whole place moves kind of just in a nice one, two, three, four. I mean, nobody really has to think a whole lot about what they're doing. They all kind of have their spots and their places. We're highly automated, very highly automated here. So that keeps the, the labor to a minimum. I'm trying to think of how to answer your question. It's like you're
1: overseeing, just like I mean, you're overseeing a farm. It's you're
2: whole, overseeing a farm. Well, let me ask about that auditing part.
1: So, you, wh- what, how does that work? Are they, what are they checking for exactly?
2: Plant count mainly. There's mm-hmm. a whole seed to sale situation that they're highly tuned into. Uh, they can
1: access all of my numbers at any time. So, how does that work? I mean, what, how, how do you actually? Are you like? going by and checking all their labels and making sure they have the not quite
2: Uh, tag there will be a, a med officer the med standing for marijuana enforcement division we're strictly recreational at this facility but there'll be a med officer uh you know come in randomly unannounced and they'll have an all of these plants are tracked with an rfid tag uh so they'll they have a little gun you know that they wave around and it'll start picking up tags so they'll check you know Plant counts in any given zone, and they can bounce that off of your tracking system to see if what they're reading in that zone is accurate as far as your tracking system. They can also check, you know, as things are harvested, uh, there's waste There's waste logs. So, for instance, all of the stems that we don't use have to be ground and mixed with dirt and rendered useless, and there are logs for all of that. There are pesticide logs that can be checked. There are, uh, which the Colorado Department of Agriculture does a, a great job with. They're they're very tuned in to to what pesticides are being used at all times, so, and they're they're frequent flyers here.
1: What rules do you have to follow on pesticides? There's an approved list. There's okay. an
2: approved list of products that can be used in conjunction with the production of marijuana. How
1: how like limited is
2: that? Or? It's a long. It's it's a longer list. If you just printed the list, you'd be like, wow, big list. But a lot of the active ingredients are the same, and the vast majority of them are highly ineffective. So for the pressures that we face. So uh, we, you can have a, an integrated pest management plan that will utilize beneficial insects and, and a lot of those types of, you know, organic type approaches to, to managing those problems.
1: You release insects. That's
2: correct. We'll release, uh, for instance, there's like a, you know, a, a spider mite, a certain type of spider mite will really mess us up, but a certain type of spider mite eats that spider mite, which will save the day.
1: So, so. Sounds a little bit like releasing a cat to go take yeah, care of the it's mouse problem. exactly like
2: that. Like and some of the pesticides that are able to be used, the, the spider mite will become immune to rather quickly, but it's very hard to become immune to a violent <laughs> attack by another insect. <laughs> Uh, so, so that 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 works great. Where we rely heavily on that, um, the med will go on to look at your finished packages. So once flour is harvested, cured, dried, and you've taken wet weights and dry weights and tracked it all throughout the process and made a batch tag, and that batch tag follows it all the way to the the machine the packages. They can tap right into that entire chain of command and and very quickly paint a very clear picture as to what went where and whether or not you're being accurate
1: what happens if you get something wrong like if you mess up if you have too many plants or you have yeah
2: I think that's pretty laid out in their statute there are some there are certain things that you could refer to as a cardinal sin What that, like what's a cardinal sin diver, diversion Mm-hmm. Like diversion would be something that would just. So if you're
1: growing more than that, showing up in that final wave... No,
2: it's more like it's way scarier than that. I mean, I, I, it's way scarier than that. The scariest version version of diversion would be something goes out the back door. For instance, you know that that's a that's a cardinal sin. An
1: employee is dealing on the side. Yeah, or something. that would be. And that's so. Do you guys have to be constantly vigilant for that or?
2: Our system doesn't really allow that to happen. I mean, I trust my team. And it takes an army uh, to make it happen. I trust them a lot, but really we just take the whatever temptation might exist in that f- the situation out of play with our internal practices and standard operating procedures.
1: You, has that ever happened at grow facilities in Denver?
2: It has, uh Sweetleaf being an example. They, they got shut down and lost all of their stores. Oh wow. All of their stores were closed. So y- you can get the death penalty. You can or- get the death penalty. That's right. And there have been a few of those. All highly publicized and a big problem. And don't forget, you know, there's also there were 50 some odd home grows shut down just the other day in in the Denver area that were outside of the constraints of, you know, the rules for home production which I find unfortunate that that option even exists. I think it all should have been ran through the regulatory market. But. Oh, you think that...
1: The, you, you don't like the idea that there are... That would customers? be my <laughs>
2: vote, personally, but I know others think differently, and it's kind of like the tomato model. It's like, well, who grows tomatoes in their yard? Everybody. Well, who who buys tomatoes? Everybody. So it's... I understand that. I don't agree with that. I would have just as soon seen it all run through the regulatory market. I think it creates a gray area that is just difficult to operate in, whether it's me as a business owner or whether it's them as regulators. It makes it a lot tougher.
1: Coming back to tomatoes, one thing that obviously makes growing cannabis different from growing a uh, you know Jersey tomato or whatever uh, is that you can't get the death penalty if you grow your yeah. tomato strong as far as I know yeah but I've, I'm curious now for just the agricultural perspective like what is there anything unique about growing cannabis that makes it difficult is you know you were saying before that in a way it's just another plant but it seems like it's a very complicated plant it is I, I, there are some So, like, what are, like, the tricky parts about it? Is it the genetic diversity? Is it the...
2: It is the genetic diversity. The genetic diversity definitely poses some challenges. As I said, if you, you know, if you like to to drink Mountain Dew, you just kind of drink Mountain Dew. I mean, the diversity... It does add a layer of difficulty, but it also is the consumer in that need for kind of what else do you have. So the genetic diversity certainly does pose some problems in the fact that we are trying to supply an environment to these plants that is kind of a middle-of-the-road environment, if you will. In other words... Everybody is kind of happy with it. Maybe this plant would prefer a little more nitrogen and this one would prefer a little bit less, but we're kind of looking for a happy medium. That certainly poses some challenges. Um, I don't think it's the difficulties so much regard, you know, and revolve around the growing marijuana production itself. It's it's really the regulatory scheme and the seed to sale and the tracking uh, that add a component to it that is just very difficult to deal with, and that and that's up to and including the pesticide situation. I mean, to go, you know, we can never really say that we're organic. I'm I'm not even sure I know what that means to people anymore. But there's the to say that we were organic. I believe there's a. The certification to be organic is federal, and so I think there are some issues there with actually being certified organic. But you can't
1: go to the Department of Agriculture and be like, "My yeah, marijuana is not organic." The federal
2: <laughs> department of Agriculture, anyways.
1: I, I want to get back to the kind of the plant itself.
2: Um, yeah, I know, and you, I know you kind of want to be. I don't. I hate to. I feel like I'm leaving you short in that department. It really, in our world, like yeah. the, the growing the plant is kind of the easy part.
1: Yeah, that's that's what's interesting <laughs> to me. It seems like it's you have like, this really complicated plant, but like. I guess it is a weed. Like, it grows... It is a
2: weed. You know, I mean, it, people can make it a lot more difficult than it is sometimes. It can also be very difficult sometimes. But so what's
1: the worst thing that can happen to a marijuana... Like crop, a lot
2: of things there. I mean, and most of this would happen from inexperience or an unfortunate set of circumstances that I could hardly imagine. But you could have, like, for instance, a nutrient a nutrient lockout to where a specific set of conditions in your root zone won't allow that plant to uptake any nutrients. Uh, making the whole thing train wreck pretty much immediately—that would be a nightmare. Um, you could have any number of things happen with a light leak, revege type of situation. So you're into flower, you know, you're starting to, your buds are starting to get nice, and and your shade curtain in our case, or your ceiling or sidewall in in others cases, could have a light leak throwing you into what is known as a revege.
1: Wait, so why? Wait, explain that to me. Why do you need to keep marijuana plants away from light?
2: We have two two light cycles here. The first one is a vegetative light cycle, which can be anywhere from 18 to 24 hours worth of de- daylight, which is simulating early summer conditions. So they're not making any kind of fruit at this point. their Their goal is to not make fruit. Everything is happy. The days are long. It's warm. We're just growing in a vegetative state, getting big. And the second life sl- light light cycle is a, is what is commonly known as a 12-12, uh, which is 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of darkness. And that is simulating later fall conditions. Winter is coming. You, It's sending the message. The the climate is sending the message to the plant. You better hurry up and make those seeds because winter's coming. And that's the plant's whole goal is to make seeds to perpetuate itself the next year. Like that's where these plants are coming from. They don't make any seeds here because we, we operate in the absence of pollen in our flowering zones. But... That's the that's the light cycle and
1: yeah so you're trying to trick it essentially and to think it's a different time of year
2: essentially that's right which if you have the ability to do that and you don't just let the sun do that natural for you you can harvest many more times in a year
1: so that's okay I see so the whole point is you're trying to get these to grow on a very fast like nine week cycle right. and you have to make them think they're going from summer to fall that's right in that nine and weeks. you can do
2: that mainly with light but you can also help that process or you know in our opinion there are some benefits that come with affecting the plant in other ways, not just light cycle, but the temperature dropping off as throughout that cycle goes. Um, and different things, but that's the message. That that's essentially, yeah, we're tricking them into just kind of hurrying up, and
1: so that's the, so that's sort of the game from the perspective of actually growing it is kind of keeping it going at yep. that speed. That's right. Interesting. And so if
2: you look at it as uh, you know, in day in months, you would be planting a marijuana plant outdoors as early as you could and avoid a frost, and then you're going to stay in that early summer vegetative growth cycle with no flowers for, you know. Until the days get shorter than 12 hours of light, which is, you know, I think right now, you know, it's August 14th. I think we're just crossing over into less than 12 hours or about 12 hours. So you would just be starting your flower cycle now, but you're four months in. In four months, I've harvested twice.
1: So how do outdoor... How do outdoor farms even compete? Yeah, and that's
2: like, interesting. And that also gets back to like the quality of the weed and kind of the conversation we had about outdoor versus indoor. You know, I mean, you have the whole Northern California situation. Yeah, the Humboldt you know, County ca- Yeah, a County lot of people thing. tell you that's the best weed on the planet. And there's definitely some... some Good weed there. I think that still gets back to the same point that I make about the climate is it's just it's just right there. So your humidity, your temperatures and everything are just in line enough that you don't necessarily need the greenhouse controls. You can do it, you know, outdoors and have a pretty pretty darn successful crop,
1: but you can't harvest at that ma- that many cycles. If you're
2: going to, you have to just get into what they call light depth. So you 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 know the simple version of that is you picture it however you want, but you're making it dark. If you want to have multiple harvests, you maybe that's just hoops that go over your little garden, and then you pull a tarp over that to make it dark at seven o'clock at night, or maybe it's a very fancy greenhouse that does it for you. But if if you in the absence of a light depth component, you're going to wind up with, you know, the good news is you're you're going to veg all summer. That's the bad news. It's going to kind of take forever, but you're going to wind up with 14, 15 feet tall plants with, you know, encircled by chain link fans that they can barely hold themselves up. I mean, that's the good part, but you have to get through a much longer growing season and you're susceptible to a lot of other challenges. If you have to go on that long of a cycle. So it's like anything else, there's good and bad.
1: Interesting. So you are essentially uh, here, you're growing shorter plants quicker. That's uh, right. Whereas if you're at a farm out in Northern California, you're growing trees basically.
2: That's right. That's traditionally the Northern California approach very much. So yes, okay. trees like rate trees and raised beds. That's definitely.
1: That suddenly I'm understanding some of the slang. <laughs> now I think, yeah, you'll, okay. and I, it I all think sense. Yeah. actually, literally raising trees. Yeah, <laughs> that's
2: right. And, you know, I think that Northern California or California in general obviously has gone recreational at this point. I think they're very much wrapped up into what might be referred to as a shit show right now, but they'll work that out the same as every other state or municipality does. But I think that their methods will change. I, I believe that their methods will change considerably from what they used to see as the very much the normal, which would be the big trees. I think that they're probably gonna to get away from that. I think it's gonna be an obvious reality to a lot of those guys once they go down this road.
3: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash podcast. That's indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
1: So once you've grown a plant, how do you tell it's good? How do you do quality control on the plants that are growing? Yep, yeah,
2: that's a great question. And whether it's, um, whether it's a flower or an extract, they're a, a, multitude of tests that are required by the state. And this is where you get back to your tracking and your batch and your batch tag and all of this can be very easily tracked by the governing agencies. For instance, our flower will go through a microbial test, it will go through a pesticide test, and it will go through a potency test. The extracts also will have... How all, do you do those tests? Like, we send those off to a third-party lab. Okay. So those have to be a third-party lab. I couldn't test for those things if I wanted to. That would be definitely unacceptable for the, the regulations that have been laid out. So that goes with third-party lab. Those those are all tested, and you know you get your results back. There are additional tests for extracts having to do with you know, residual solvents and levels of any solvents that you use to make the extract along with the um hey you're throwing me off <laughs> you're throwing me off <laughs> hey good to see you uh, shitload of tests man you know <laughs> there's a
1: shitload of tests it just you send it all off to a lab and they're going for each little bit of that and you have to figure and then you get it back and that tells you like i mean what happens if a batch if a grow isn't good like what do you do? There's
2: a method to quote unquote remediate that. There are also some things like a, a powdery mildew or something that you could test hot for uh, would be acceptable to go through a MIP processing mm-hmm. because those contaminants are lost in that process and don't wind up in the final product. But
1: so there are a lot of different things you can do if it's not, not an a lot. ideal. There's really plant. not a
2: lot. Um, oh no. Okay, especially in like a pesticide. Like if you test hot for any of the pesticides that are disallowed, you're that you put that in the cardinal sin.
1: Do you category. have do you have to, Do you often have to just like get rid of plants, trash plants that didn't come out right? No, we've never had that. You've never had never had
2: that at all. No, no, that would be a scary day. You, you can, if you, you know, just apply some common sense to the situation. uh, You can do it. You can do this very much successfully without pesticide component.
1: Like you didn't set out in life to become like a farmer. Like this is like running and like this is not. This was. I, I doubt if a like career counselor had asked you. No, know. Your, I do
2: like harvesting things. Like I've always harvested. I've always done a lot of fishing. I've harvested a lot okay. of fish. I harvest a lot of whitetail so deer. So what, what
1: is your what is like your favorite part about this? Like what do you actually what what's the part you enjoy about running I don't the think egg? there's
2: a favorite part. I mean, I've done a lot of projects in my day, you know, most of which have been pretty mundane and kind of boring. I mean, every day there's just such a unique individual set of challenges that I'm faced with at 6 a.m. that it really kind of keeps you on your toes. I I uh
1: so to you, it's just like a business challenge.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the the guys from 2009 are kind of a dying breed. There's not a ton of those left. They've kind of turned over and, you know, it got a little too hot in the kitchen for a lot of those guys that couldn't kind of get up to the corporate-type standards that we're dealing with today. So, I mean, just to see that whole transition take place and be a on-the-ground, real, everyday part of it has been very rewarding, and I... I I'm glad to still be a part of it. It's, it's all my favorite.
1: But you still sometimes miss the the old the old warehouse. I,
2: I do. <laughs> you know, those were the glory days, and those are never coming back. So I'm glad I got to see those. All right, man. Thanks. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you.
1: That's it for this week's episode of Working. Thanks, as always, for listening. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman. And if you enjoyed the episode... Please, please write us a review at Apple Podcasts. You could just leave us a few stars, or you actually sit down and type out a review, one or the other, whatever floats your boat. Uh, and if you have questions, comments, criticisms, whatever, write to us at working at slate.com. Again, that is working at slate.com. The producer on this show is Jessamine Molly. I also want to give a special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. And to Daniel Schrader, who sat in the booth and helped me record the, he is currently waving at me as if I shouldn't thank him right now, but who sat in the booth and recorded my intro and outro because I needed someone to do it that day. Thanks again, and uh, catch us next
3: time.